Welcome to another episode of Positively Deviant Emergency Medicine. If you're new here, this is a long-term interview podcast designed to extract the key tips and methods of my colleagues in emergency medicine. When I first conceived of this podcast, Keith Henry was front of mind. He's kind, he's loaded with teaching awards, he sees patients quickly, he gets along with staff, documents well, he's pretty much the whole package. So I'm super excited to learn about what makes him tick in today's episode. Keith trained in emergency medicine at Regions after his medical school time in Arizona. Unlike many academic physicians, he went directly from residency into community practice. At a local high-volume community ER, he developed skills and confidence learning from some non-academic physicians. Luckily, something lured him back to our program a few years later. He now shares the skills and wisdom he learned out there with medical students, residents, frankly, staff docs. He also currently serves as the medical school emergency medicine course director. And I think what I love about this interview is how it gives you a feel of Keith as an ambassador of emergency medicine. I think of him interacting with all these students planning their careers and potential different specialties. And, you know, some of them are going to be in emergency medicine. And for them, I think he's a great role model. For others who are planning a career in some other specialty, I, I really hope that they keep Keith in mind as they're off taking calls from the ER, because I think he represents really one of the best examples of emergency physicians out there. So let's dive in. Our interview in my office was immediately before one of his clinical shifts, and I barely got him there on time. I'm already thinking about a round two interview with him, and there's plenty of material left to talk about. So enough of my blabbering. Let's get on with this interview. Oh, well, uh, Keith here. I've got uh, Keith Henry here today in my office to talk through some of his tips and tricks that he's learned in his uh, successful career in emergency medicine. And uh, thanks for joining me. Brad, thanks for having me. And and I, I just I've got to tell you, I'm impressed at the pre-flight check. You're like a commercial airline pilot. I feel like we're ascending to 30,000 feet right now. I, I modeled it right after that. You have to make sure the ons and the offs are in all capital letters. So it's like um, recording on. Like gotcha. You can't just say recording's on. Yeah. You have to say recording on. Well, I feel very safe. and I feel Okay, like you feel right gonna ready to flight. take yeah. off. It's going to be a great yeah. flight. Well, we might in- encounter, you might experience some turbulence, but I'll make sure uh, I warn you if possible, but keep your seatbelt fast. Yeah, that's to be expected. Well, uh, I, I appreciate you spending time because as uh, other people who might have listened to this podcast uh, to this point have known, I've been trying to ascertain what makes people have a long long and sustainable and fulfilling career in emergency medicine, what uh, what motivates them to come to work or what makes them, uh, how do they mitigate when they don't feel like that? And how are they successful during a shift in particular? And I know that uh, you've hit on all those boxes. So uh, I'm very excited to talk with you more about it. Um, you know, I think what I've opened with on a lot of uh, different discussions with people is uh, just this general question. If uh, Do you enjoy your work? Uh, Brad, I, I got to tell you, I, I am one of those fortunate individuals that just sort of fell into the career of a lifetime. I think um, what I do in emergency medicine is a uh, probably the best personality fit for me. I love coming to work. I love teaching. I love providing good patient care. Um, it's it's just been a, a wonderful adventure for me. So 
Yes, I love my job. That's great. And um, are there any, um, would you say at the end of a shift, I'm going to focus specifically on your shift. You've got some non-clinical responsibilities, but with a shift, um, would you say on average, do you leave feeling fulfilled or drained or both? Or how? Do, what's your kind of feeling when you get to the end of a shift? Yes to all of those. Yes to all of them. And it depends on the shift. I mean, obviously, uh, some shifts are higher acuity than, than others, and some you've got more volume, more surge than others. Uh, some are just more personality conflict. Um, oriented than, than others. And so um, I'm always fulfilled. Um, I'm frequently drained mentally and uh, physically, but that's part of the job that I've come to really appreciate and love. Okay. And so um, in that moment of feeling drained, um, and this is, you know, just really personal for me, because I sometimes feel that the, the negative version of drained, I guess I'd call it, where you just feel um, like the life's been sucked out of you, but not in the way that you might say, wow, that was a really good workout. I can I can tell I'm going to be feeling that for a few days. It sounds like more often than not, even on the draining shifts, you're feeling a fulfilled version of draining instead of a um, despair version. Yeah, don't get me wrong. There's uh, shifts that I work that I want to run out of the building screaming in terror and, uh, you know, not wanting to come back. But I think I think the way I feel about a shift um, starts with my pregame. Um, in, in even, so I work a CPOD shift, um, this morning after this podcast and, you know, coming into work, I've just made it part of my, um, overall routine to remember that sense of, uh, wonder before I ever got into medical school, how great it would be to, to take care of people, to take care of patients, to provide them something of value. If for no less than 20 seconds, I can remember that feeling. Um, I'm set. I'm good to go for the beginning of the shift. I want to do my very best for uh, the patients that I work with, uh, for the residents that I teach, and for the department as a whole. And so I set myself up that way so that at the end of the shift, you know, I think of that again. Um, and, and oftentimes that is enough to, to placate me, to, to give me that sense of fulfillment that you're talking about. So uh, let's get into that more because I like uh, hearing that you just immediately got into one of the questions I've got, I've liked to ask is rather pregame. So often uh, we schedule our busy lives like I'm going to show up for my shift at the time it starts. Um, do you? I, I don't, I'm saying I'm finding that not everybody does that. Some people uh, get there early. Some people know I just want I'm ready to go. Do you have a? Do you try to budget in some time beforehand, considering? You've started this podcast before you're going to start a shift in a few minutes. <laughs> right, right. So, so for me, um, early is on time and on time is late. And if you've um, if you've waited for me um, in the past to to sign out, that's probably uh, more of the exception than the rule. I like to get onto deck about five to ten minutes before the shift starts, just so that my uh, partner knows that I'm there ready to take over. And if I can dive into a room to just kind of get things set up um, for my shift, then then I'll do just that and wait wait for, um, say, I'm taking sign out from you. I'll wait for you to just kind of get your ducks in a row. You know that I'm there. I'm hopeful that that makes you feel a little bit better that I'm taking a little bit of that edge off of you. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of the way I roll with, with shifts. I like to get there early. Um, and then to that mindfulness about um, your um, 
your feeling back to sort of awe and understanding where you sit in the world like you did in medical school at the beginning of the shift. Do you, is that something that comes naturally? Do you have a pre-flight checklist like uh, I have for this podcast that says like um, off, uh, awe and uh, presence on? <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Um, no, it's, it's all part of a ritual, a okay. routine. Um, you know, I've got about a 15 to 20 minute drive time in depending on traffic. And so these are the things that I just think about. I want to make sure that I'm in a good frame of mind because when I'm in a good frame of mind, I'm going to provide the best possible um, care to my patients, the best possible teaching. And so, um, you know, and and that is variable sometimes. Um, but um, I think more often than not, that sets me in good stead to to just be positive when I'm showing up. So regardless of what I've got going on, um, how many irons I've got in the fire, um, I'm at least thinking in terms of how do I provide the best possible care to patients, provide the best teaching for the residents and students, um, and and benefit the department as a whole. And I think that that's just one of the, the few things that I, I think about before starting a shift. And it's really not that since when I was in medical school, it was that it was just that 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 gut feeling of how great it would be um, to be a physician, to be a clinical provider, to provide something of value to people. Um, before I ever knew what medicine was, it's that little spark that just kind of keeps me going. And I try to tap into that as often as possible as it relates to medicine. Are there any other aspects of that um, pre-flight that you do other than kind of getting yourself met ready uh, mentally as you're driving in and thinking about that? That you can think of, so I so I take that thirty seconds or so. I I kind of find where that spark is on that given day. I'll get to the department. And I'll usually check in uh, to my office, just take a look at what's going on downstairs, and that kind of prepares me for you know what I have to do. And depending on what's going on downstairs, I might show up a little bit earlier or a little bit later than I normally would. Okay. Um, and so I kind of want to know what's going on, and and not just in the pod that I'm going to check into, but I, I want to know. You know, who's in the waiting room? Um, uh, you know, how many patients in what acuity or in, in pods uh, E and uh, in A? And, uh, and, then I, and then I go down and roll from there. And then during that first part of the shift, um, and sometimes this splits between whether you're supervising or you're practicing somewhat independently, but do you have a, sort of like, I take sign out and then, and then what? Um, do you go from there? Yeah, so so I've I've structured an approach over the years that kind of works for me. It might not work for everybody, but it definitely works for me. And I've got three priorities when I roll into a shift. And uh, for residents listening to this, um, we often talk about this uh, toward the end of shifts. Um, my priority number one is seeing patients. Um, and so if there's red on the board, I get myself into the room. Um, I make sure that those patients are seen, evaluated, if nothing more than to thin slice, which is a concept that you just get in. Um, you get the nuts and bolts of what's going on. You get some things ordered with the notion that you're going to circle back around when you've got more time. So I see as many patients as I can, as I feel comfortable with, as priority number one. Priority number two, I circle back and do dispositions. And that includes checking workups in progress, where they are, have they gone to the scanner, is the... Uh, is the said rate back on those few times that I order a said rate? <laughs> um, you know, and and then and then finally, 
is that patient ready to go somewhere? They're on a launching pad. They need to go into the hospital, up to the OR, uh, home, to dialysis, to a clinic. Where do they need to go? And if they're ready, they're taking up a pretty precious resource that I can give to somebody else in need out in the in the waiting room. And so priority number two, dispositions. Priority number three, everything else. And that includes procedures, um, documentation, making sure that my workflow is up to up to snuff as, as much as it can be. And so those are my three priorities. And that's a structured approach that I use that's really helped me out since I started in community medicine after a residency. I realized really early on that you can run the shift as much as you can, or the shift can run you. And if you don't have a structured approach to what you're going to do next, you'll get sucked into a code blue that runs an hour. You'll come out and you won't know where to start. Priority number one, I see patients. Priority number two, I dispo. Priority number three, I get caught up on documentation. I go in and do the wound repair, nerve block, IND, whatever needs to be done after that. And then um, do you have a sense that um, in your priority number one, as you're trying to kind of, it, you know, I think a lot of us refer to the act of plate spinning and trying to get how many plates spinning. And it sounds like one of your first priorities is get as many reasonably safe plate spinning as possible in terms of things in progress so that you can do other work while those things are happening rather than um, doing those other things and then having to still wait for that same thing that is parallel processing versus serial. And Correct on all points. I consider myself the rate limiting step in the department. If I'm not in seeing a patient, getting a workup started, or deciding that a workup really doesn't need to be um, ordered at this time, um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm making those decisions so that I can expedite departures into the hospital or home um, as quickly as, as possible. And so um, to that end, I think one of the, I don't want to call it controversial, but I bet to an external observer, the world thinks that, and I think I even thought of this naively at the beginning, that like you go see the patient, you take this full HMP, and then you place orders, and then you... Um, do things like there's this sort of workflow of getting all of it done. Do you feel like you've learned that there are certain categories like chest pain where like, I know you're going to need these labs. I know I'm going to need this x-ray where you turn that on your head and you're like, I'm going to get these going before I even see you and tell the nurse to communicate, Hey, we're sending you to x-ray things like that. Are there, cause I think that that's, um, I want to say that's a little bit of playing with fire, but I think the people that have learned success have figured out how to play with fire. Yeah, and I, I certainly wouldn't describe that as playing with fire. I don't think um, that emergency medicine has been safer ever in the history of emergency medicine than it is today as we speak, as we sit here. Um, by virtue of the environment that we practice in, um, we have to do things different. And that's what we're trained to do through residency. We refine that in our own clinical practice after residency. Um, but you're right. It's it's a different approach to patient care than you would get in a clinic, in an OR, upstairs in the ward. Uh, and again, if we, if we assume that traditional approach to patient care, we would bring an emergency department to its knees. And people who are waiting out in the waiting room that got misdiagnosed with a leaky AAA as flu-like symptoms, those patients um, would, would, be, would be dropping like flies. And so that, I think, I think it's, a, it's a great question. And I think um, coming back full circle, efficiency is really a state of mind. 
Um, and it's going to be unique to every individual physician and provider out there. It's what best fits your personality as far as risk tolerance, um, your ability to make decisions um, as quickly and efficiently and patient-centered as possible. That takes experience, that takes time, that takes really solid training. But I think one of the most important points of that um, whole efficiency concept is defining your role as an emergency physician. And I've had the good fortune of working with um, many, many emergency physicians right out of residency. Um, I worked in a, a busy community emergency department. And we had uh, residency trained board certified emergency physicians. We had grandfathered emergency physicians. Those are docs that did uh, a different career residency tract and grandfathered in when uh, emergency medicine was a new specialty. And then we had primary care docs uh, who never grandfathered in. And so I got to I got to witness how each of those individual providers uh, worked. And the one thing that I did notice is the the docs, and it it was not dependent on whether you were residency trained or grandfathered in or primary care. But the difference um, from the emergency docs that just showed up to get things done and the ones that were really flying through patients with a great deal of efficiency and safety, those were the docs that knew their role in the emergency department. And the one thing that I talk to residents about toward the end of shifts when I'm giving feedback is you have to take some time and define your role as an emergency physician because we're not just family practice docs with procedural skills training. That's not what we do. Um, the best docs, the most efficient docs, have defined that role for themselves. And again, that can be unique to each individual provider. But if you don't do that, you're sort of assuming some Brownian motion each and every shift in the emergency department. If you haven't defined your role, why it is that you're a specialist in emergency medicine, other individuals in medicine will have no problem defining that for you. And it's kind of like, you know, OBGYN. They kind of know what their role is. A general surgeon, they know what their role is. Um, a pediatrician, they know what their role is. Emergency medicine, it's kind of nebulous. And if you don't think about sort of your role, what it is that makes you a specialist, what it is that defines you, uh, again, other people will do that for you. What are, what are uh, some of the aspects of that role that you see others taking on that you would sort of, if given the opportunity to talk to them in a corner, whether they're a resident, like you probably do have that opportunity, or more often maybe like you had when you were just post-residency learning from these community docs, seeing a different view of the world than you probably did during residency. Are there any specific tasks that you would say, man, is that your role? You question them in their Brownian motion in that regard, or at least taking on something that that you would advise, like, that's probably not going to be long-term fulfilling for you. Uh, yeah, I think we're running into some turbulence here. And this is where it might get a little bit choppy because I don't want to <laughs> offend anybody's 
uh, particular practice. Again, you know, I can't tell anybody how to practice. That's that's something that's individual and unique to to those providers, and it's based on risk tolerance. It's based on experience. It's based on their training and how confident they feel with things. The one thing um, that I often talk to residents about are these comprehensive war and peace workups, searching for the that that PE that might be hiding in there somewhere, and and I often it it's it it's. It's often that I get a, uh, a presentation from a, a senior level resident. Hey, uh, you know, I've got Miss Jones. She's sixty years old. She's she's presenting with kind of anginal symptoms, a little atypical. I think that's what this is going to end up being. I can't really exclude a PE, but I'm going to scan her chest. Um, it'll come back negative, and then I'm going to admit Miss Jones to the hospital for a cardiac workup. My my question is that if if you're if your pretest probability is really that low, um, what do we have to gain by running Miss Jones through the the CT scanner in the first place? I mean, can we reasonably exclude that um, that possibility of a PE um, clinically, given that her anginal symptoms are more predominant? Are you just getting the CT because you can't? You're you're, you're going to go home from the shift and you won't be able to sleep tonight uh, because you haven't excluded that that PE. Um, I think we, we're all a slave to that. Another example is... Can I stop you before you go on? Yeah, because go this comes back to my playing with fire comment, uh, because I think this is where, while I don't... Um, I personally find that the way I've become more efficient was um, a conversation I had with a, a fellow internal medicine resident back when I had to do internal medicine rotation. I think you did too as a first year intern. Oh, that's how that, I dated me even for you now. You've been dated. Um, but the concept is like the people that ordered less tests often were more efficient because they did less work to follow up on. You're just creating future work for yourself, especially if that test doesn't land where you think it would be. And so my question about that is, it sounds like you've built a skill set of being confident in both your diagnostic pretest probability assessment, your ability to communicate with patients about like we don't need to get that CT in the rare case that the patient was actually asking for it, which is often it's us. I find that that same senior resident would be projecting that diagnosis on that patient is not even a concern of theirs. Um, do you find that that's the case? Like, hey, I can I know about when I should go and talk and just figure out how I can talk through the patient and examine, and I don't need to do any tests, and they just go right home versus the patient who clearly is going to need these tests and get the workup. That's nuanced, I guess, but I'm going to try it. Yeah. When it, when I talk about efficiency, um, what, what supersedes that entire concept is doing the right thing. And so if a patient needs a CTPE run, then they're going to get it every yeah. single time. It's on those um, seemingly endless patients who are showing up with chest pain. And just because they have a chest attached to their body um, <laughs> obligates us to perform this CT angio. And sometimes doing the right thing is being confident enough with your skill set to forego some of those um, extraneous tests that could, could possibly cause the patient harm. Um, how often have you performed that CTPE run on a patient um, because they were showing they were presenting with with chest pain? Um, you told yourself this CT is going to come back negative and I will either admit or discharge with 
with close outpatient follow-up, you get the CT back and through the form, there's no PE, but now you've got uh, a little little granuloma. You got a little nodule that needs to be followed up. The pain and suffering that that causes individual patients and their families is immeasurable, and we don't take that into consideration when we're ordering these 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 comprehensive war and peace workups uh, just to placate ourselves um, and and allow ourselves to sleep at night because you know maybe we would have missed that incidental PE that we didn't need to find anyways. Um, the suffering is Im- immeasurable. Um, and, and it's just something that a couple of years into practice, I I started to, to have this internal debate with myself. Um, if I'm thinking that this is going to come back negative, if I'm confident that this scan is going to come back negative, then why are we even doing it anyways? And, and that does not, um, get me off the hook with talking to patients about those, those things and the workup options and that sort of thing. Um, but it's just not something I'm willing to do. If I don't have to get a test, um, I'm not going to get it. Here's another example. We've we've got we've got surges throughout the uh, throughout the summer and the winter months, and people are waiting four hours in the in the uh, waiting room with a with a cough and some sniffles. You get them back there. Vital signs look good. Oxygen stats are 100. percent Lungs are clear. The patient, their family. Uh, they're convinced that the, the, the patient needs a chest x-ray. Your clinical exam suggests otherwise. Now, why are we ordering that chest x-ray on the, in the end? Why are we, and, and this is something, I've done this before. I continue to do it um, now and again. Why are we ordering those extraneous tests when our skill set says um, otherwise or suggests otherwise? Um, I would argue that you could, um, you can spend, a fraction of the time it would take to get the patient over to x-ray, get them back. You look at it yourself. If you're confident, you make that read. You add more time on to have the radiologist read it. Save that time. Have a have a discussion with the patient and their family. Look, I know you're, you're feeling miserable. Um, your vital signs look great. When I listen to your lungs, they're clear as a bell. We're seeing a lot of this going around right now. This is how we're going to manage it. I'm going to get you into your clinic within the next two to three days. You're going to come back here, have more of a discussion, less of a this reflex uh, need to order tests on patients and move on. Um, and I think that that's good clinical care for your patients. I think that's good clinical care for your department and your community. We need to move these patients through uh, so that we can ensure that that leaky AAA wasn't uh, mistriaged and has been waiting out in the in the waiting room for three hours. Um, I could tell I'd, I could probably spend three hours talking to you. So I'm already like trying to process a few different avenues we could go here. But I, I specifically want to kind of say, I think what we just talked about here, like get do the right thing, get the right test, like we probably don't need a podcast to tell people to do that. On the other hand, I think what I, at a a higher level message is saying, I hear you saying is like, you feel like you're depending on this skill to make you efficient. It's like, it's not just do the right thing, but you actually are, I think are saying, look, the right thing is actually the efficient thing more often. Cause I can often do often. It ends up depending on my own skill set and my exam and my ability to communicate with the patient quickly and often avert a workup that probably just was there for other people's uh, like a legal purpose or things like that. And that's one of the things that you would say that's an aspect of how you are an efficient doc in your practice. Is that, I just kind of want to confirm that that's how you view it. 
Yeah, more more or less. Um, and so I guess without, I think I awkwardly phrased that up, but I, I wanted to get you to the next thing that you had said in terms of roles about emergency medicine. Um, you had, I cut you off when you were about to say the second thing after um, trying to figure out what's your role and what you're trying to do is, is what, what, what other things do you tell people that you try to kind of say, maybe you shouldn't have that as part of your role, if you remember. Uh, again, I, I feel that turbulent airflow right, right now, right. and I'm going to try and uh, touch on uh, a couple of things. The turbulence is good. This is good music. I mean, <laughs> this is the this is what we're looking for. <laughs> uh, in emergency medicine, you can be um, specific or you can be sensitive, but you can't be both. And I think that that's something that evolves over time based on your training, your experience, your clinical confidence. Um, the specific emergency physician. Um, they focus in on uh, a complaint-driven uh, workup and not, you know, casting the net completely wide to capture those those things that may or may not be there, the, the so-called zebras uh, in our specialty, because the sensitive um, emergency physician just can't sleep at night if they're not doing everything that they think is right for their patients um maybe from a from a patient centered standpoint maybe from a medical legal standpoint um i, I don't want to come off as um overly confident or cavalier this the, the things that i'm talking about right now just fit my personality um and when i do that gut check um would would i want this same um, doctor, would I want Keith Henry providing care for, you know, my own family members? I think that's a little convoluted, but um, if it if it feels right, then then I then I move forward with it. Certainly, your high acuity complex patients, you do not pass go, you do not collect two hundred dollars. You stop, you throttle back, um, and you think about them. Um, maybe in a more comprehensive manner. Uh, but for your typical, you know, chest pain, influenza-like illness, that sort of thing, you certainly pay attention to the nuances, but you would tend to move um, through them a little bit quicker mm -hmm. than normal. Did th I don't know if that touched on everything that you just... I think it did. I mean, I think that this is, um, I think this is fundamentally the in a lot of ways, I've been using this podcast and even just today to try to quiz you about what you think you do. And I think it's hard to have that self-introspection to kind of go like, I don't know, what makes me, people say I good. Sometimes here's what I think it is, but other times I don't know for sure. And so any of this sort of nasal navel gazing aspect of an interview like this is somewhat hard to get through, but I think you've certainly helped me see what, what you feel is important about it. And again, I think, um, you know, efficiency as it relates to our specialty is going to be unique to each individual provider. I think the, the most important things to think about, uh, number one, defining your role as an emergency physician. If you haven't sat down and done that with yourself or over time, you're sort of adrift in the emergency department. And again, um, if you haven't defined your own personal role as an emergency physician, as a specialist in the house of medicine, um, the your consultants, the nursing staff, the clerks will have no problem defining that role for you, none whatsoever. So that's one of the most fundamental concepts of being an efficient doc is determining what your role is. And again, emergency medicine is one of those nebulous specialties where it can be a little difficult to anchor down. I remember there was a 
there was a an intro in Rosen's that we were all required to to read as as residents that sort of went over some of those nuts and bolts, but it didn't in the end define that concrete. Um, you're an OBGYN. This is what you do. You're a pediatrician. That's what you do. I think um, our role is a little bit more difficult to find to define, and it depends on who you are, the environment that you're working in, the expectations of your system, the system at large. Those are things that are going to be included um, as you define your role as an emergency physician. And that's likely not to change, but to evolve over time as the system changes, your population changes, um, the things that you're asked to do and required to do in emergency medicine change. It's a fundamental concept that I don't think that we talk enough about defining your role. Who are we um, as, a, as, a, as a specialty? I have a pretty good sense of... Um, what my role is as an emergency physician. But I think that's one of the most important things to do. The second most important thing to do is structure your approach to a shift. Um, You can run the shift or the shift can run you. And a structured approach will allow you to put your train back on the tracks when you come out of that TTA that's run uh, an hour and a half with, with a bad outcome. Um, think in terms of structuring that. Approach. Yeah, and so you we had, you kind of referenced that, and that's a question I've asked often: is like um, this sense of control out of control and the balance that you feel at any given moment, because that often for me leads to the sowing the seeds of frustration or abandonment of any sense of the rest of the shift. Like often, it's just like if I can't get the train back on tracks. Um, boy, it's, I don't want to say all is lost, but I can tell I'm just probably not a good doctor. I'm probably bleeding my documentation way beyond the shift because I just let go of that because it's relatively easy compared to the next thing. I might not sign up for somebody as fast as I would, or I might not have that critical conversation as well. And I'm curious about your strategies for getting the train back on the track. I think you alluded a little bit to that, but I want to hear it again. Those are thoughts to have after the shift. Um, As emergency physicians in a busy level one trauma center, it's absolutely essential that we keep that train on the tracks at all times. And if it falls off for whatever reason, we get it right back on and, and we move forward. Certainly, I want to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. I want to make sure that I'm taking care of the residents, the nurses, the people that might have difficulty with um, perhaps a, a less than optimal outcome, a bad outcome, uh, a difficult patient interaction. Um, but we need to we need to get that train back on the tracks, and we need to move forward with the remainder of the shift. Again, I. I hold a heavy responsibility with not only the patients that are under my direct care, but the ones that are out in the waiting room waiting to be cared for. I think that's all our responsibility. So it's incumbent that we build in a system um, to right that ship when it's when it's yawing a little bit. And you had mentioned before that you start by kind of looking to see who has needs their workup started or progressed. Like that's your kind of stepwise, like and like at the beginning of a shift, if you come out of that trauma or out of a difficult interaction with a patient and you're feeling off tracks, you start back with, let me survey the landscape. What do I need to get started? Who can go somewhere? And then everything else. High acuity patients always come first. They need, um, you know, they, they need your attention first. Um, and then it, we filter off um, uh, from there. And certainly working at, at, regions uh, is much different than, than working at Hudson. Um, you know, 
I'm going to go to CPOD today and I'll be largely working by myself. And so it depends on the resources that you have at your disposal. If I'm on pod E, I'm more directing traffic to get residents into rooms and, and to ensure that they're getting their um, their jobs done as efficiently as possible. If I'm on CPOD, then that's all on me. And so I want to pivot a little bit into just talk a little bit about documentation um, before I try to um, wrap us up in time for your C-shift. Um, do you have, I, I, you've, you've built a pretty solid documentation workflow, I think, and you've tried different things over the years. Um, can you talk to what you found successful in trying to keep up with documentation during the shift while you're juggling everything else? I think the, the one thing that's evolved over time in my own um, documentation practice is I've, I've simplified it dramatically. Um, you know, I used to, to document the war and peace uh, versions of a, of a note um, right out of residency. Um, but that has evolved dramatically to the point where I'm putting less and less um, into maybe the medical decision making. I am avoiding repeating uh, myself, the things that I've put into the history, I'm not going to repeat them down in the medical uh, decision-making portion. And so I, I try and um, include the pertinent positives and negatives. Um, I want to relay to that next provider why I chose to do something or to not do something um, and then and then move on from there. My, st- my preference, uh, and this is just based out of habit, um, is to phone dictate. And I know that's a dinosaur looking for a tar pit right now. So I'm a little, <laughs> so I'm a little bit nervous uh, about, you know, the years to come. Uh, but I think as, as that phases out, I think Dragon is just becoming more and more efficient to use. And so I'm, I'm sure that there will be a time and a place that uh, I'll, I'll evolve into to the dragon world and start documenting that way i still free text uh quite a bit uh but again you mean yeah okay yep but again i'm not um i'm not repeating the things that i'm i said in the stated in the history um i'm using some some smart phrases um and um and i'm I'm wrapping up the medical when you talk about like less is more a little bit um are you one thing I sometimes talk about with residents is being able to target. There's always the, my first goal is to try to communicate complex situations or complex decisions I made to the next caregiver that might take care of them. Either me, if they show back up on while I'm still there, which is not likely really a good example, but more if they come back a shift later and they see you after seeing me. Uh, But also um, admitting them to the hospital or whomever. So the the question I have is after that, it probably a lot of it comes down to billing and or medical legal, and um, and I think it depends a little bit on the environment and a self assessment of the litigiousness of the group that you're happen to be living in, but whether one takes the credit. But if I were to go to billing next, have you built a set of understanding of the billing? rules and regs to know how to throttle back on an ankle sprain to be like, I can't document a ankle sprain as a level five. So I just know what not to put in my note and spend time doing that. I try as much as I can to, to sort of gauge um, the level of complexity of, of each individual patient. But with our population, I also realize the fact that if um, uh, Mr. Jones, who is 63 and a chronic alcoholic, is coming in with an ankle sprain, that might be his only contact uh, with the system 
um, that that he's had for six months, a year, two years. Maybe he's from out of town, and so I definitely want to be a little bit more complex um, with with that workup. And I think that's completely um, justifiable um, uh, to myself. Um, and I really, I really don't care what. CMS thinks or the, the coding and billing department thinks, I'm going to make sure that they um, get an appropriate evaluation and I spend some time talking to them about um, smoking cessation and following up with a clinic. And oh, by the way, here's a list of free and low cost clinics. I really like open cities and West Side Clinic. They're very accessible. And so I, I definitely um, uh, I, I feel a heavy responsibility to ensure that I'm, I'm giving them that, uh, that level of care. I, I think you touched on um, you know, the complexity of medical decision-making. And, and I just wanted to, to talk about that um, real, really quickly. I don't, I've been doing this for 15 years now. Um, and and I, I, I don't think that what we do in emergency medicine is rocket science. And in fact, that's what I appreciate about our specialty um, is that this can be a practical um specialty tract. I mean, you can be practical in emergency medicine and still um, deal with complex presentations. You know, you, you have a, you have a patient that's um, in septic shock and now they're in renal failure and they're hyperkalemic and they're um, in atrial fibrillation with RVR. Those are very, very, that's a very complex sequence of events, but individually, um, fairly simple to identify and and to treat with what we're going to do in emergency medicine. And so I, I try if 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 I'm having a struggle with a patient encounter that, my God, this is so complex. What I, I have to stop and I have to rethink things. What makes this more complex than than the last train wreck that that I that I dealt with? We can we can get this distilled down to its lowest common denominator yeah. and provide this patient some some very very good care realistically speaking so i don't i, I don't know if that was a tangent or if that answered the <laughs> question i really I, well but i think i can tell that like like as you talk we talk we we're talking a while about workups and the complexity that you take on in the emergency department and your role in it i think you that it seems to mirror very much into your documentation like if you're if an ankle sprain is not necessarily an ankle sprain, depending on the context of that patient, for example. And if you need to do more for that patient, um, you might scale the documentation, but it's a practical scaling. It's not a, I'm now going to put everything in my note to try to get to a level five. I'm just doing it mostly because this is reflects the practical conversation I had. Is that a pretty good... I mean, I don't mean to summarize it, but that's that's kind of how, what, how I'm hearing I think what you describe. Fair. No, I think that's totally fair. And and I think that's a lot fair. of that comes down to this years of practice that you've developed and trying to figure out how to be comfortable switching different levels of complexity on and off per patient. Sure. You know, there every once in a while, a patient is going to present with a with a scab, and and that's that. You you're not going to build a level four or five. Um, you know, evaluating that scab. Uh, you right. Know, they're they're going to get a, they're gonna otherwise get a, five and a they're gonna, teenager Oop. who could care less about it, and their parent was like, "I don't know. I just wanted you to look at it." And they're not the parent that takes care of them. All of a sudden, you're like, "Yeah, it's nothing." Right. And nobody else is compared. It's nothing else. Are concerned that it's not nothing, and therefore, let's move on. Agreed. <laughs> moving right. on. Moving on. Well, I think um, I want to um, wrap up by just asking you a few questions I've asked others, which is. Um, one is, um, are there any, um, 
aspects of lifetime learning that you've found that have been particularly, I don't know, I heard Felix today at a meeting use the word nutritious, <laughs> like the concept of learning being nutritious. Any high volume tools you've learned to build these skills, particularly not necessarily the content of emergency medicine, like what drug to use in a dissection, but more of how to develop the skills we've talked about here today. Yeah, I I don't think I'd be the model of efficiency in in that in that realm. I think you're looking for more of a, a Joe Walter or or somebody like that. But I I will tell you that um, before blogs were uh, mainstream and cool, you know, I was dialing in. I was doing the EM abstracts, the sure. EM rap while they were still on CD. Yeah. Um, you know, back then. Um, it's a podcast now. Right, right, right. <laughs> much, much like what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I, I get annals. I make sure that I, I at least skim um, the journal monthly to look for things that are pertinent. Um, one of the things that I used in the past was Journal Watch through the New England Journal of Medicine, um, and they distill down the most important. Um, uh, uh, what am I? What? What am I looking for here? Well, articles, like the summary articles the, of the of, of the month to yeah. just kind of keep you. Uh, to keep you up to date and abreast of, of what's going on, maybe not so much in your own specialty, but um, in other specialties as well. And so I've used that in the past. Okay. As I've um, as I've grown and matured and my family has matured, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to dedicate that time um, to um, continuing medical education. You know, I've got a young family. I've got kids in sports. They're going one direction or the other. I'm trying to stay healthy and uh, you know, maintain a, a workout program that that's good for me and balance that home life. And then I try to balance work. And I also have a couple of roles over at the University of Minnesota. And so sometimes what falls short, and this is no excuse, is is just kind of keeping up to date on um, that type of information. It's not that I, it's not that I I don't do it. It's that I'm not as consistent as I used to be. And maybe that's the that's the rub here. You, yeah. you, you I mean, as as a healthcare provider, as a physician, as an emergency clinician, I mean, it's incumbent upon us to keep up um, with um, with science. I mean, it, it it changes daily, and and the things well, that I was doing uh, when I was first out in um, practice are are completely different than than what we're yeah. doing today or how we're practicing. Today. I think what I found is. Um we've talked about sort of this meta skill of being able to look at what's important and what's not. And even in the medical literature, as you move on the first few times you learn something and then you unlearn it because the things pivoted away from it being the, the end thing to do. And again, dating myself as I came on the tail end of high dose epi, you know, I was back in the day when like, should we be giving them five milligrams of epi? And then you know, years later, it was like vasopressin. Vasopressin. Everybody shouldn't die without a dose of vasopressin. Brad, were you rotating tourniquets? I I, uh, I have rotated a tourniquet in my life. I've done a few things. So it's shocking how young I feel, yet how old these things I'm saying are, because it totally... Uh, Lefevre and I have gotten into how old some of my practice memory is at this point, but but that's exactly it is like you start to learn like, hey, maybe I want to watch this one a little bit. I'm not going to dive all of my education time away from my family into this. The flip side is there are some things where you're like, wow, I am 
shockingly behind on a, either a procedural skill or even an understanding of when it should be used or when to use an imaging modality and things like that. And I think that's, I honestly, I feel like I couldn't practice in many ways, especially for me at the quantity I do without being a part of the residency here and the learning. Well, that, I think that's, I think that's a key point. I think that that that's a, a stopgap for most of us that work um, clinically at, at regions is being involved in the residency program. Every shift is CME. I mean, you're continuing your med- medical education. It's not that you're not doing that in community medicine. Um, but I think being, um, being part of this residency program, teaching a procedure lab, um, uh, going to conferences, um, having those academic discussions with residents at the bedside that really does keep you engaged and keeps your keeps your foot in the water, uh, so to speak. So my wrap up final question is uh, final question, final answer. Um, really, a question that I was. Some people told me when I was developing my career before even med school, and they're like, "Oh, I don't know if I'd go into medicine these days." Um, boy, everything just looks like it's going downhill from here. And I, that really stuck with me. And I apparently didn't listen to them because I'm here now. But I wonder about your own kids or the people you have you are mentoring, even indirectly, neighbors or things like that, or is your role, role as a medical student uh, leader? What's your outlook on medicine and whether you'd recommend it and why? So career, that is. so clearly medicine is is not without its problems and I had the exact same uh, discussions with uh, physicians that were trained back in the heyday and when I s- described the heyday it was the late 70s 80s um, not so much the early 90s um, but that's when um, you know as as far as I can tell um, it was easier to do your job the documentation requirements were less. Um, Physicians were making money hand over fist. Not that we're not doing it um, these days, but it was just a different time in in a place um, to practice medicine. And largely, I think that was all bullshit. <laughs> when I mentor uh, my own children um, about what they can do, the possibilities for them in this world, a couple of things come to mind. I, I want them to choose something that makes them happy, and that might not be medicine, and that's totally fine. I'm, I'd be happy with whatever choice that they they make, but I want them, obviously, to do something that makes them happy, that is gratifying and stimulating for them on a day-to-day basis, uh, much like the career path that I've chosen in emergency medicine. Um, but number two, and 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 equ- as important as as um, being happy, I want them um, to provide something of value to others. Um, and and certainly you can you can choose to do that in a zillion different ways. Um, but some providing something of value to others is something that about my specialty that I honor and, and cherish. And it's what keeps me coming back for, for more. I had a, a an old ratchety um, internal medicine professor at the University of Arizona when I, where I went to um, uh, uh, medical school. And he told me one time, he pulled me aside, he's like, Henry, you know, in medicine, there's not that many diseases they're not that difficult to manage, but it's the people that'll keep you coming back every time. And that's something that just really resonated with me. And it, 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 and it is. If, if there's one boring thing about emergency medicine, it's the medicine. 
Um, it's it's not that it's not stimulating and it's not fun to practice and plunge in a central line here or there and put in a chest tube. That's all great, but it's the people. It's the stories that they bring to the table. Um, the things that make me a better human being are interacting with, you know, veterans and scientists and school teachers and the homeless population. I, for the first time in my career, the other day, I cared for a gentleman who was 107 years old, sharp as a tack. Um, and did you sign him out to me? Because I think you did. I or maybe how did that go? It went great. Was that okay? Yeah. Okay. But you're just like, hey, I I don't know if I breathe around you. Yeah. And he worked for the park services uh, for 40 years and he had some great stories to tell. And oh my gosh, I mean, a guy that has seen some, some monumental change in his lifetime. Those are the things that I really cherish. And, and, and in addition to being able to interact with these people on a day to, to day basis, I feel like I can give them something of value. And that's what really makes this career track special to me. Oh, I love it. That's a great story to end on. And I think particularly when I reflect how we started about how you start your shifts with uh, value, I'm hoping that since I have given you very little time to get down to your shift, I've just incorporated your pre-workflow into this podcast. But I'm on a C-pod day, so I'm not taking sign-outs from, from anybody. Right. So I, I think we'll I think Well, I'll be, be clear that you're not abandoning we'll your responsibility. <laughs> I think we'll be good. Yeah. Well, All right. Is- well, Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say thanks a lot for spending this time with me and uh, sharing this with everybody. I think people are going to be excited to hear. Just I can hear the passion in your voice, and I think people uh, are don't get to interact with us in this level often. And so I'm hoping that that's where a lot of this interview provides value for everyone else. Well, this was a lot of fun, and you know, I was I was comfortable, I felt safe and cared okay. for, and I'd, I'd fly with you again. I was going to say the landing was pretty smooth. I hope um, we're going to start the shutdown checklist to make sure the cabin lights are secure or whatever the doors are cross-checked and <laughs> all call is completed or whatever all they call say. yeah so all right thanks a lot keith and uh, we'll get you off to your shift talk to you later thanks for listening to this episode of positively deviant emergency medicine please consider subscribing to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts or you can listen on the web at positivelydeviant.audio there you can also leave a comment tell your colleagues or tweet me up it helps spread the word You can also leave your feedback to make them better, or you can give me your guest suggestions. And here's a standard disclaimer. The thoughts and views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals alone. No one you heard here represents the organizations where they work. Now that you've heard that, let's shut it down. Until next time, thanks again for listening.